The last few months, guys, we've been kind of rolling through a series of lessons in Ephesians. And if you've been along with us for most of this ride, you know that this is a kind of a challenging discussion because we just move from challenging concepts to challenging concepts. And that's very much by design on how the Apostle Paul is, is encouraging a church that he knows very, very well to become the church that God calls her to be. And, and Paul's challenge starts off almost in a philosophical way as he kind of outlines for us what it means or what Jesus did for us and what Jesus' life and sacrifice means to us. And then he moves in the middle of the book to becoming very practical. And he says, you know what, in spite of what Jesus or in light of what Jesus has done, this is how you are now called to live. I don't know about you guys, but I, I love music. I um, always have been kind of a music fan. I realized a while ago that uh, there's a lot of things that uh, I'll go to sleep watching a YouTube video of. You know, some true crime, uh, I'll go to sleep on that. A documentary, I'll go, of course, we all go to sleep watching documentaries. That's why we watch them, right? But, but if you give me a, a YouTube video of, of a good guitar player or of a strong singer, if somebody does one of those recap videos of America's Got Talent, I am, I am just absolutely captivated by that. And one of the things that musicians do is that musicians tend to copy other musicians. I, I play with a group of guys once in a while and we do bluegrass music and they're in many ways very accomplished musicians in their own right. But the majority of the time they're playing songs that other people have written and in styles that other people have popularized, popularized and they're playing licks that other people created. We are people who copy. And the apostle Paul understood this. God ultimately understood this and that's what the ministry of Jesus has always been about. Jesus came into this world not just to live here so that he might die, but to also illustrate to us what it looks like to be a Christian, a child of God. With that in mind, let's pick up this morning where we left off last week. We're in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, and, and we picked up, well, we left off in verse number 21 or so, but let's just read for context, verse number 18 and following. Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul, Paul starts off, as we remember last week, and he said, guys, don't settle for a synthetic, better reality. You know, I think a lot of times when we... When we we drink alcohol or we, we get into drugs or a lot of other diversions. We're looking for a better reality. We want to numb our minds. We want to ease or distance ourselves from our pain. And the Apostle Paul said, guys, that's not a permanent solution. It's not even really a solution at all. You're just kind of checking out for a while. He said, rather than being drunk, which leads to all kinds of sinful sort of things, be filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit of the living God wants to move in, transform, and change us from the inside out. And then he, he reminds us that, that the result of that transformed lifestyle is that our life becomes music to other people's ears, right? He talks about greeting one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, that your everyday walk just becomes almost a, a song that you sing. But guys, it's not our song. It's not our melody. It's not our lick. We are, we are copying the master songwriter, the master life 
liver. That is Jesus Christ. And so Paul then begins to focus us in the last part, in verse 21, on where he is going to head for almost the rest of this entire section of Scripture. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I just realized, I realized this morning that just saying the word submitting automatically begins to throw up red block, roadblocks for many of us. Because submission is not something that Americans are good at. It's just not a part of our, our cultural DNA. We are individualists. We are people that are, that are kind of consumed with our rights and, and our abilities and, and our speech and our freedom. When Paul mentions that we should submit, that for most of us strikes not such a melodic chord. But you notice here that Paul is not talking about a forced submission. Paul is talking about a voluntary one and a voluntary submission that is motivated by our reverence and love for Jesus Christ. Before we jump into the rest of this lesson, let, let's, let's start off this morning and talk about what it means to be in submission. What is submission? Because I think we can carry with us a lot of cultural baggage, and certainly we'll mention this several different times. I think probably a lot of us, when we hear the word submit, the, some of the first questions that come to our minds are things like, well, why do I need submit? And why do I need to yield? And uh, why can't I just do what's best for me and my family, right? And that's natural, because we think in the Western world of, of submission as being a weakness of thought process. But the beauty of submission is that it is tied to the nature of God. This is not the only place the Apostle Paul is going to talk about this submissive sort of attitude that Christ came into this world with. In fact, he mentions it in several places, and Jesus himself will mention it himself. For instance, in Philippians, written to a church not far from, from Ephesus, and a church that probably dealt with a lot of the cultural similarities, um, that the church in Ephesus did as well. And in Philippians 2, picking up in verse number 5, the Apostle Paul writes this to that church. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We're here to copy the pattern that Jesus established. And then he begins to define that force, maybe fortunately or unfortunately, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." This is a passage of Scripture we often hear when we're, when we're talking about the Lord's Supper, and I think it's a very appropriate passage for that, that time because it reminds us of the extraordinary sacrifice of Jesus. But sometimes it's easy for us to forget that Paul prefaces this reminder of, of Jesus' enormous sacrifice with a commandment that we should mold and shape our relationships with other people to look like Jesus' relationship with us, that our mindset when we are thinking about others should be the same as Jesus' mindset when he was thinking about us. Jesus did not consider the equality that he had with God something to be grasped or something, as the, as the ESV says, to be used to his own advantage. It wasn't something that he possessed 
But it was something that he was willing to give up. He didn't use his position of importance and of value as something that he would use selfishly. What he did was, was willing to do what God had called him to do. Submission isn't something that's forced on another person. This is something that Jesus willingly went into. There's that moment in the garden where Jesus is, is praying, a prayer that was so intense that the Bible describes he was sweating drops as, as of blood. And his prayer is this very simplistic and yet powerful, powerful prayer. Because he goes to the Father, knowing everything that's to come. The disciples didn't know, so they're sleeping, right? But he goes to the Father, and he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But it's not my will. It's your will that will be done. I want you to notice, before we jump any farther into the conversation about submission, a couple things that are really valuable to notice. Number one, Jesus knew what God's plan was. But God didn't force Jesus to do his plan. It would ultimately be Jesus' willingness to accept the challenge laid before him that would deliver Jesus to the cross so that he might pay the price for our sins. When we talk about submission culturally, sometimes maybe you think of submission like, like I do. I grew up in Iowa. In Iowa, there's a lot of wrestling, right? And um, in, in football, you teach blocking and tackling. In basketball, you teach shooting. In volleyball, you teach ball handling. In wrestling, you teach submission moves, all right, so you, you get in a position and you teach the wrestler how to tweak a joint or an arm or a body part in order to cause a sufficient amount enough of, a, a sufficient amount of pain. There we go. That the wrestler will submit to your, to your leveraging and allow you to pin him. And I think that we just are driven with that idea in our mind that this submission the Bible's talking about is somebody taking me and twisting me in a pretzel until I say, uncle, and I'm no longer able to stand against it. But the truth is that God has always left submission as a voluntary activity. You get to choose, as well as I do, whether or not we will submit. And that is a background to everything that we are going to talk about throughout the rest of these lessons. Jesus reminded the apostles of something in Matthew, the 20th chapter. I think it's an important lesson for the church and maybe for many of us this morning to remember because we live in a world that is, seems to be, seems to be um, as always it probably has been, obsessed with the idea of power and control. Jesus called, uh, called them, I mean the disciples to him in verse number 25 of Matthew 20. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones ex exercise authority over them. That's a picture we're familiar with, right? Leadership is in control. Leadership matters. Leaders get paid more. Leaders have responsibility. Responsibility means that you have to do what I say. That's what Jesus is talking about. But then he says this in 26, it shall not be so among you. This is not the way my people behave. This isn't the way my church will function. In fact, Jesus goes on to define for us how it will function. But whoever will be great among you must be the servant. And who would ever come first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a lot of preachers, a lot of church leaders, a lot of religious organizations that should take a very hard look at this passage of scripture. The church is not about us controlling, manipulating, leveraging other people. Jesus said, if you want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, learn how to serve. If you want to be great, then you be the slave of everyone around you. Jesus is talking about voluntary submission. Jesus, when he came into this world, brought a whole new approach to relationships. Power and control, that's an old model of relationship, but the model that Jesus brought is servant leadership. And this is something that's so unique that it absolutely captivated the world. As, as Christians began to leave Jerusalem and go to Samaria and then Judea, to Judea and finally to the ends of the earth, people were amazed at what they were bringing. They were coming not to take from the culture, but to give to the culture. They weren't taking to drive other people down so that they might gain advantage, but they were getting underneath other people and lifting them up so that they might have a better life. And that struck a chord in a culture that would transform the world. In fact, they would say that the world had been turned upside down and they were right. God's view of leadership is an upside down view of leadership. And so that's why the Apostle Paul is going to spend the rest of Ephesians talking about how our relationships to various Various groups of people are forever changed by our belief in Jesus Christ. He talks about our relationship to our government, to our masters, to slaves, to fathers, to children. And today he's going to talk about where it must start, the relationships of submission between a husband and wife and family and marriage. There's a very real lesson to be learned and applied in our marriages from this verse. And even if you're not married here today, the concepts that are outlined in this text are not just for marriage. Because as you remember, in the New Testament, God uses the institution of marriage, which is his institution, as an illustration or a real life, a parable of what the kingdom of heaven or the church should look like. And so he uses those images, right? The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is the bridegroom that's coming to take home his bride. He uses those images because they are to be for us a living, breathing example of God's plan and purpose for all mankind. Paul's discussion about marriage here in Ephesians 5, the latter part of Ephesians 5, doesn't appear as a self-contained piece of of, of marriage advice. It's not, don't, please don't misunderstand that. Paul didn't just say, I'm gonna step into marriage advice right here. This is a part of the story that he has been telling from verse number one. Paul is clearly and deliberately and carefully referring back to things that we have talked about and he has talked about throughout the book of Ephesians. And so Ephesians 5, verse 22, Paul writes this. He said, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I don't think I have to tell you this morning that some of the things that are listed in that text are somewhat controversial in the world in which we live today. And again, much of that is because when we approach this passage, we approach this passage 
with a lot of cultural baggage along with us. Because of the world we live in, when we hear the word submit, we can easily assume that Paul is talking about terms that we're familiar with, about dominance, about control, about one submitting to another by force, whether it be by physical force or by force of cultural tradition. Because, and that's because the world that we live in today really only cares about power, authority, and decision-making. Who has control, who gives the orders, and who calls the shots? That's what we want to know. But guys, the church is not worried about who calls the shots. That's Jesus. And we're not worried about who is in control because that's God. We're worried about whether or not people are voluntarily submitting their lives to the pattern that God's called for us to have. And that means that that our idea, cultural idea of submission is 180 degrees out of alignment with God's. It can be easy for us to take Paul's words here and quickly jump to the conclusion that Paul is talking about marriage and falls into kind of two camps where you have a corporate controller and you have another person that's following orders from on high. Maybe some of you have worked in those environments before. Where, where you, uh, you have a boss, and he's the, the lord of that particular area, and what he says goes, and if you disagree with it, tough. If it's unsafe, he doesn't care, because he's the boss, and he, you will do what he says. Sometimes marriages function like that. And in the years that I've done marriage counseling, I've done way more than I would care to have done, I find that there's generally two results that come about in a marriage that operates with that kind of ideology. Number one, sometimes the wife in that marriage or the weaker partner in that marriage will simply submit and just deal with the misery. They suffer silently. As a young young person, I I saw that in my family where a, a strong personality dominated and controlled for their own purpose and advantage, a weaker, sweeter personality And I really didn't care to be around them very much, and I didn't care for the dynamic of their home. And I should tell you that that most of the children that were born into that home today don't necessarily believe in God because it's a flawed, broken system. God never intended. Jesus did not say it's okay for us to lord over other people. He said if you want to be a great servant, then you become a slave or a servant of everyone. Marriage is not about suffering silently. Oftentimes also what might happen in a marriage that's more of a corporate top-down command structure is that the other spouse, the wife, will subtly or sometimes not so subtly subvert and undermine the control, and the marriage becomes an unhappy power struggle between two people. Either one of those scenarios is absolute misery. And some of you know that better than than I could even say this morning from the stage. Some of us have lived in that world. Some of us have struggled through those marriages. This morning, I'm not here to be critical of anybody who's had struggles in marriage because they are real, but I am here today to tell you that God's plan for marriage doesn't look like that. That God has a plan that is deeper and richer than our idea of what submission and control and leadership in marriage might look like. 
As Paul writes to the women, he gives them three things to keep in mind. First of all, he tells them the motivation. He says that wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And that as to the Lord phrase there is very, very important because they are doing it in honor and in submission of the Lord. Remember, he said, submit to one another as for in reverence to Christ. So we're submitting to each other because of what Christ did for us, not necessarily because we like each other or we think that each other maybe has an equal opinion with ours or that the other person knows what they're talking about. Those are all kind of side issues. Paul said that we're submitting out of reverence for Jesus because Jesus submit to a world that was really broken, to people who had no idea of what was right or wrong, people who thought they were holy, holy, holy while their inside was full of dead man's bones and sin that was destroying them. And yet Jesus came into that world and he dealt with those people and he loved those people and he healed their sick. Or the phrase, as to the Lord, is significant because it gives for us an understanding. Paul said that good is alone. I will make a helper for him but rather than forming some more dirt up and breathing some more Lastly, maybe we ask this morning, how? How do we? He goes to these words in verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are all members of his body, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he'll hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul admits what we all realize. This is a profound mystery. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So we're going to work quickly backwards to this text. I want you to notice the ending portion of this because it's really the goal. And then we're going to go back, and we're going to look at all that... (laughs) Paul says to husbands, because if you notice, even in your Bibles, it looks like the guys got a little bit more instruction than the girls. You're right. Um, in the Greek, the, the wives get 40 words. In the Greek, the husbands get 115. Paul and God, by extension, are, are laying the responsibility for the sum of this at the foot or on the shoulders of the gentleman. You notice what he says at the end. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he will hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. If you want a definition for what biblical marriage looks like, that's a really good one. And he is quoting what occurs several times in the Bible before that. Jesus quotes this. It's an Old Testament concept that's been consistent from the very beginning of time, right? Told there in the story of Genesis. I want us to notice what the final tagline of that is. He said, and the two will become one. And Paul notices that there's a mystery to this because we're still individuals, right? We, we still are going and doing our own things. We're, we're pursuing our own paths in the world. What is this oneness that God is talking about? Maybe today you can imagine that you're 40 years old. Maybe life hasn't gone exactly like you thought it should. Maybe there's some financial bills that are piling up. 
Maybe some family relationships are a little stressful. Maybe the two of you, once madly in love, have just found yourselves in recent years beginning to walk in two very different directions. Seems that your passions and your excitements in life are in two different circles. You rarely communicate about the things that really matter. And there's some part of you that just thinks deep down inside that it might be easier to walk away. Now, I want you to imagine that you're 70s or so. You're sitting across the table in a small beachside cafe. The waves are gently rolling in. The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. And you're looking into the eyes of a person you have been married with or married to for 50 years. Guys, sometimes we have to look beyond the moment to be willing to do in the moment what has to be done. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before us, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, so that he might have an opportunity to set once again at the right hand of God, that he would be in a place of unity. If you're in a place today where your marriage is not unified like you want it to be, if you're in a place today where you are not at one with the one that you vowed to love and to cherish till death do you part, I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that the road ahead will be difficult for a while. But it's worth it. And if you're a guy here today, I want you to know that the vast majority of the responsibility for fixing that relationship, according to our Heavenly Father, rests on your shoulders. And so we're going to take a look this morning as we wrap up at what God calls men to do. Husbands, what are we called to do? And simple, as he opens up that phrase, he said, husbands, love your wives. If you're not married today, if you're a young guy that's here today, listen up, because these are the things that God demands of you. If you're a married guy here today, these are things that we gotta get better at. I'm not here to browbeat anybody, because as I look at this list, I recognize, like all of us do, that there are areas that I have failed, and there's areas that I'm weak in, and there's areas that I must improve in. But he starts off and he calls us to live sacrificially. That we, we begin to think about the world in such a different, different way. Now, I want you to notice quickly this morning, as I mention these things, so often, these are things that more often than not are generally descriptors of the wives in relationships. But God here is calling the husbands to be the ones leading in this area. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is not just a one-way submission street. This is a two-way submission street. Wives are to respect their husbands, as Paul points out, but husbands are to love their wives. Sacrificial love is difficult for most of us because we are by nature selfish creatures and we're constantly looking out for ourselves. And Paul's going to channel that energy into a healthy way in just a few minutes. But are we giving up our own egos to help build up the lives of those people who are part of our family? Or do we demand that they somehow prop up our ego? Are we going before the Lord every day in prayer and asking that he might help us put to death those things in our life that are hindering us from becoming the husband or father that our families need us to be? Are we forgiving our family members as Christ forgave us? Those are non-negotiables. 
And yet we all struggle with those, don't we? We, we all hold back things. We, we keep grudges. We find ourselves having a pity party on occasion because we're weak. But that's not who we're called to be, men. We're called to love our wives, and that means that we, we learn to sacrificially love them. It also means that we learn to live and to love purposefully. So many of us just kind of blunder through life. We just kind of roll with things, and we hope that we'll sort out everything the way we need to sort it out when we get there. But guys, that's not a way that you would approach anything else in your life. You wouldn't go out on a road trip and think, ah, I hope the car gets me there. I mean, maybe sometimes we've done that, but probably most of us wouldn't. You don't roll into retirement and say, ah, maybe I, I hope I figure out some way to make money or somebody feeds us. No, most of us as guys in the physical world, we're planners. We, we, we make sure all the tires are inflated. We make sure the oil gets changed. We make sure the repairs are made to the house. We make sure that there's financial plans and budgets and reserves for retirement. But where, where's our purposeful living when it comes to the emotional and spiritual health of our families? Our goal is given us by God is to create an environment in which our wives and children and whoever else might find shelter under our roofs will grow to become all that God meant for them to be. And it would be our responsibility, our opportunity to push, promote, and lift them to accomplish the things that God has created them to do. A husband's love ought to encourage his wife to reach her full potential, both in life and in Christ. And he wants to encourage those family members that he loves to prioritize their relationship with our Heavenly Father. There's a funny thing in American culture in which it seems like men are aware that we must provide for the physical needs of our family. And so we go to work and we bring home the paycheck, but we think that our responsibility stops there. We say, you know what? I put food on the table, so I've done my job. Guys, that's not your job. Your job is bigger than just putting food on the table. Your job is to provide for the emotional needs of the people that are under your roof. Your job is to provide for the spiritual leadership and guidance of the people that call you husband and father. Those are our responsibilities. I know we're not all good at that. Some of us that's comfortable and some of us that makes us very uncomfortable, but it is our job and God will give us the strength that we need to accomplish it. The third thing that I think Paul is calling husbands and fathers to do is he's calling us to love passionately. I'm not talking about that kind of passion. I know some of you are like, finally, Jason, we got to a good part. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking, I'm talking about having a zest for life, having a drive to, to do this. Sometimes I think we just get to a place where we kind of just sit back on the couch and we give up on life. We lose that drive. We lose that enthusiasm. We just go to work. We come home. We eat and we go back to bed. And we fall into a routine that is boring to us and certainly boring to everyone else around them around us. Notice that Paul says, husbands, love your wives. And then he says, as your own body. How do we take care of ourselves? I think we're very, very passionate. We're very, very aware of what our bodies need. If we're hungry, we're looking for something to eat. If we're hurting, we're looking for a way to relieve the pain. If we're tired, we're trying to find a way that we can rest because we're aware of the needs of our body. We are at one with the rest of of our members. 
And Paul says, husbands, I want you to learn to live as one with your spouse, with your wife. I want you to be aware of their needs, their concerns, their struggles, their challenges. In verse 29, Paul says this. He says that we, no one hated himself, but rather he nourishes and cherishes himself. Some strange words right there, but I think we kind of know what that means, right? Nourishes means that you feed it, right? That you provide, you provide your marriage and your family and your, your relationship with your spouse and your spouse with the things they need to be emotionally and spiritually and physically healthy and secure. That is your responsibility, to know what those things are and to provide for those things. But then he also says to cherish, And that's an interesting word. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, just two accounts of this word. And it's used in 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, as Paul is writing to to, uh, Silas and Timothy, who are there in the church in Thessalonica. And he says this to them. He said, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Gentle is the same word that Paul talks about uh, that we translate cherishes here in Ephesians. You know, sometimes we have that idea of the Apostle Paul that this was this like rash brush kind of aggressive dude that rolled in, hey, you got to do things, right? And yet Paul said, no, that's not who I am at all. I was, as he describes himself, gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. The Apostle Paul realized Well, it's time that all of us realize that our families, that our spouses, that our extended family, and that the broken world around us has one very important decision to make. Will they submit to the plan of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And if they don't, eternity will be separation from God. But if they do, eternity will be a place of happiness and restoration. Guys, we are called to not be macho men, but to be a tender and aware enough with our wives and children that we are in tune with their needs, their struggles, and their challenges. Paul starts off and he said, submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a word that is not easy for us and certainly for many of us in marriage. It can be a challenge sometimes. But I want you to think with me this morning. Think how peaceful and secure your home or our church family would be if every person went around showing deference and concern for one another more than themselves. We would have an end to all of our conflicts and strife almost immediately, wouldn't we? It's in the church. Guys, while we were still sinners, Christ came into this world and submitted his life so that we might have freedom and forgiveness. And now we are called to make the choice to voluntarily submit to others as to the Lord so that they might be built up and they might become the disciples that God has called them to be.
you have a need this morning, you know that you can always come. If your marriage is in trouble and no one knows, they've weathered those storms and they are going to be able to tell you how to get from being that miserable person after 20 years of marriage to that happy person that's been married for 50 years. It can happen. Most importantly, recognize that our Heavenly Father, He's the one that's called us to this plan. It's His idea and it's His Spirit that empowers us to do so. If you have a need this morning, please stand with me and sing together.